Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Today's episode is brought to you by Basecap. So I remember when, you know, really building companies as an entrepreneur, how really frustrating is when you have people missing out deadlines, there's people that are not copied on emails, and then, you know, like everyone ends up failing in the pursuit of, of, of accomplishing things. So email is really great when you're doing one-to-one conversations, but when you have a ton of people there copied, you know, there's going to be people that are going to be missing out on stuff. So for project management, I actually found Basecamp and I found it to be a really fantastic solution. You know, basically what they are is a collaboration type of uh, tool that allows people to really engage with their offer message boards, the to-dos, the schedules, their document sharing, the group chats, and other tools that are going to help you in taking the game of your company to the next level. So go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and sign up today for their 30-day free trial. And there is no credit card that is required and you can cancel at any time. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited about the guest that we have today. I mean, she's a powerhouse. We're going to be talking about going from the Army to McKinsey to startups. I mean, building, scaling, financing, jumping off of planes, going to combat in Afghanistan. I mean, you name it. I think it's going to be quite inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Roxanne Brass. Petros, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So originally you were born in Texas, but you did travel quite a bit, you know, with your father being a pilot and your mother being a nurse. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, I think my parents are a very um, kind of adorable, like American dream story. My father's from Holland. He um, flew with the Dutch Air Force and through NATO was in the U.S. My mom had joined the U.S. Air Force to kind of see the world. And of course, they sent her to Texas. And they met. Um, my dad stayed a, a commercial airline pilot after that, moved around in Texas and Florida and ended up in um, Celebration, Florida, of all places, which is Walt Disney World's planned community, which is as weird and creepy as it sounds. That's amazing. So I guess saying from from moving quite a bit, I'm sure that you developed, a, you know, the personality there of dealing with uncertainty, because I guess that as a child, uh, you know, moving is new friends, new environment. So would you say that that perhaps helped you to dealing a little bit better with uncertainty? I think so. I feel like you end up being a bit, I don't know, resilient and just sort of figuring uh, things out. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot about uh, people in the military that bounce around all the time and it ends up um, teaching you how to make friends very quickly, kind of adapt and like, whatever, be put into a different environment and be okay with that. So yeah, I imagine that there was like some version of that that was helpful. So how do you end up in Afghanistan, jumping off of planes? Tell us about that, uh, how, how you get there. I ended up jumping out of planes in the U.S. and deploying to Afghanistan because I think there were very few people who jumped out of planes in Afghanistan. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, so in the, um, in the Army, I ended up there. It was actually kind of a pretty simple story. My, I mentioned my father's from Holland. He served in Dutch military. And essentially, he was very confused about the idea in the US that you pay $40,000, $50,000 a year for college tuition. He thought that was absurd. And so I got into Harvard and I was very excited. And um, we still have a 
family moment about this. He was like, congratulations. How are you going to pay for it? And obviously I was um, a little bit upset because I thought he was going to pay for it. And (laughs) indeed he was not. And so he had a friend who had a daughter in ROTC. I learned a bit more about that and realized that it's a good way to pay for college. And we kind of compromised on, I would try it for a year, see if I liked it. And we'd go from there. And that is how I ended up in Afghanistan. So how was, how was like the experience of, of going to Afghanistan? I mean, obviously, you know, I'm sure, I mean, that, that was crazy adrenaline filled and, and I guess to a certain degree, you know, building a startup is also like going into war. I mean, it's a, every day, especially during the early days, it's kind of like a fire that you need to put out. But how was like, you know, the experience of, of going to a place like Afghanistan where, where you don't know if you're going to be able to come back? Yeah, I would say it was definitely a really like important like moment in time in my life. And I'm glad I did it in my 20s because I think now, I don't know, it's just a different game. I think what was amazing about it is seeing really good leaders and kind of having this very like visual sense of them. So when I think of a good leader, I like can picture, you know, the certain captain who came back after like a really tough mission and how he interacted with the soldiers. Or I just have these different moments of like something scary happening in a helicopter and someone projecting calm. And I think that's probably one of the key things that has stayed with me is like, just knowing what good leaders look like. And I had a a mentor tell me, like, just hang out with people you like and want to be like, and it'll rub off on you. And um, so I I think that Afghanistan was a really helpful time um, for that. Those are very helpful for perspective building. I don't want to, you know, say that, like, I never get flustered, because I've seen real hard stuff, like I absolutely do. And startup hard is different than army hard. But I do think it has helped me put into perspective stressful situations, frustrations, like I can contextualize it and generally keep a pretty even keel, just because I kind of have like, I guess, a bit of a stress inoculation. That's not to say I'm impervious to it. But I think I just got like some pretty good, I guess, to continue the metaphor, like vaccines for stress, whether it's from army training, into like survival training, it's like a simulated prisoner of war camp, like all of those moments um, are really helpful because they, like my body has kind of remembered stress and remembers how to, how to um, deal with it. So how do you deal with stress? I mean, <laughs> in your case, I mean, now when you have like a, like a tough day, for example, like how, how do you deal with the stress? Yeah. Hypothetically, because there's never tough days in startup world. Yeah. I mean, like, I think that it's like, it's all super basic, but it's just remembering to execute it. So it's things like taking a breath. I think of good leaders who always escalate the tension in a room. So if there's like a stressful meeting, I will try to remember to take a step back, maybe crack a joke, see how other people are reacting. If someone needs a minute, like give them that minute, just in almost always like de-escalation is kind of step one, because there's very good, like very few good decisions are made when you're stressed, freaking out, like not able to see clearly. So usually try to gain some composure if you have the time. There's other basic stuff that's actually kind of more about like self-care, but trying to make sure that I'm working out, seeing my family, like all of those things, I think allow you to have perspective in the stressful moments. Whereas if you're always kind of running on empty, like I think it's really hard, you bring that energy to your team. So those are two things I think about. Now, in your case, when when you came back, um, you ended up going to Oxford. And out of all things, you, stu- you studied your master's in, in philosophy. International relations. Like, yeah, like master of philosophy. But. Yeah, so international relations and, and so master, master of philosophy and international relations. So, yeah. so I know that um, that obviously, you know, perhaps opened up a little bit more the perspective. And, and literally right after that, you know, you even 
you know, a little bit after, you know, because obviously you enter the labor market and all of that stuff, but well, right away, you know, not 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 long after you started your first company, Super Meals. So yeah. can you tell us about Super Meals and what was that journey like? Because obviously it was fully bootstrapped, a little bit different from what you're doing now. And and I'm sure that it shaped you a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I had, like you said, graduated from Oxford, went back into the army for a while. And one of the pain points I saw in the army was actually around nutrition. Like it's just really hard if you're busy to um, to eat well. It's a problem I think a lot of people have encountered. And there was a grad school friend of mine um, who was sort of thinking about a similar idea. We we went to a reunion or something like that and kind of started um, like riffing on this idea that became supper um, about using commercial kitchens and professional chefs to deliver healthy meals to essentially a suburban audience, think like young families. And it was like a really neat opportunity because I wouldn't have thought of myself as an entrepreneur, in particular, not a tech entrepreneur. Like I went to Harvard when Facebook was becoming a thing. And I think in my mind, entrepreneurs were like, you know, candidly men with CS degrees. And so it was it was really neat to be able to um, to build a business and to realize that like part of building a startup is building a business. I think this has been a realization that people have had more in the past couple of months. It was really cool to uh, bootstrap and like learn what that's about and sort of see this whole like life cycle of a of a business. But I'm really glad that I, you know, just happened to be talking to a grad school friend about an idea that we both had because I'm more like I get interested in the ideas. I was never someone who said like, I'm going to start a company. It was more like I get really passionate about an idea and then I end up starting a company because I get so obsessed with the idea. Got it. Now, with the experience with supper meals, I mean, you went through the full cycle. Uh, You know, obviously you didn't raise any money, but, you know, you were able to see it from start to finish because you ended up selling it to a competitor. So how did the whole acquisition, you know, come about and, and what did you learn from really seeing a company from the beginning all the way to the finish line? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's like, you know, obviously you learn so much, but something that I learned from that experience is like getting leverage on time. So I think that a challenge because we hadn't raise capital that my co-founder and I had was really getting leverage on our time. And so the business worked incredibly well when we were putting our time into it, but it wasn't as, I don't know, I guess I'd say like sustaining as we would want it. We would have wanted it to be either for it to be a lifestyle business for us or for us to sell it. So I thought a lot about that and starting um, Athena, my, my company now, like how can I make sure that I can replace myself at any of the lower level tasks that I'm doing to make sure that I'm getting like the maximum leverage on time, which I think is genuinely really hard in bootstrapping because you just, you aren't able to trade off money for time as much. Yeah. That's probably like one of the key lessons that I've, that I've kind of taken away. And what about the acquisition? Tell us a little bit about the acquisition. Yeah. So, you know, my co-founder and I like kind of saw that it wasn't, um, we didn't want to necessarily like spend our next 10 years on this. There was something there. There were really passionate customers, amazing retention. But we're like, this this just without capital isn't what we want it to be. And we're not, we're not totally sure we want to raise. And so for a variety of reasons, to include personal, we kind of decided like we would like to put this somewhere. And it was neat because we realized we had this network of people in the food industry from um, where we were working at the time, which was like North Carolina. And so we just ended up talking to a handful of them to see like, okay, would this be, you know, would you be a logical um, like home for this business? And through those conversations found essentially like a very similar business, just in more in the like um, CSA, like uh, groceries um, delivery and ended up 
kind of having those conversations and and the owner of that business ended up wanting to buy it. So it was like a series of a couple of conversations with logical homes and figuring out um, the right one for it. And it ended up being pretty, pretty quick. And as they say, I mean, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. But in this case, you know, it took a little bit of time to go at it again. So why did you think, you know, it was it was better to go to McKinsey, you know, rather than, you know, doing another company? Yeah, I talked to a bunch of mentors, like essentially when we had um, sold supper and said, like, here's what I'm interested in. But I don't know, like, it's kind of funny when you so in the army, I'd had about six years of work experience, gone to grad school, but I wasn't a specialist in anything, right? I wasn't like, okay, I've spent five years in enterprise sales, or I'm a marketer at heart, or, you know, I'm a engineer. (laughs) So I was kind of in this position of being like, I'm an expert on leadership and kind of vague things, but I don't necessarily want to go into like a um, chief of staff role because that was a really logical thing that was thrown around. I I talked to a couple of companies, but just never found the right fit. Talked to um, a VC in um, Boston. And I think he was totally right. He's like, look, you can either be a consultant or a banker um, as your next move until you figure out what company you want to start next. Because I think he saw that like, that's what I was going to do eventually. And he just said, consulting is nice because you get to see a bunch of industries and see if an idea sparks there. And I talk to people who want to be founders. And my advice generally when they ask, like, should I quit my company now and just ideate? And I'm in the anti-ideation camp because I think you could just sit and kind of drive yourself crazy in a room thinking about an idea. But at McKinsey, I was seeing real world business problems all the time just through my normal, you know, day to day. And so I think it was much more helpful for me to find a business that I wanted to make and build while I was doing something versus if I was just kind of like going on walks and talking to people. So, I mean, my perspective is generally if you're thinking about building a business, don't quit your day job is I think like where I, I net it out. Now, let's talk about McKinsey. I mean, McKinsey consulting, I mean, obviously is really great because it's, uh, it helps you kind of like grabbing a big problem and breaking it down into like small different problems. So, I mean, it's a good training. So I guess from that training, when it comes to tackling problems, what did it teach you that perhaps you didn't know before that you're implementing now? Exactly that. I think that consultants are, it's like one skill set, but it's a pretty good skill set, which is like breaking down problems, solving them in a logical order. And that is essentially what I do as CEO. Now, you know, like I'm not, um, again, an expert in any one domain. So even if, for example, like our CRO comes to me with a problem, I'm not going to be able to say like, well, in my experience as a CRO, here's how I solved it. Instead, I'm pretty good at asking questions to try to get at the root of the issue, sort of map it out. My team members know that I love a whiteboard or a Google Doc or like any sort of visual representation to just give ideas some structure and help someone else solve a problem. Yeah. So like, not that I think consultants make the most amazing um, CEOs necessarily, but I do think it's a really nice skill set to have um, because it, like, I think my job is essentially problem solving at this point. It's very rarely like just executing on something. So then at what point during your stint at McKinsey, do you come across, you know, uh, this next idea and, and, and what was that process like until you said, you know what, I, I'm going to execute on this? Yeah. So I've been thinking a bit about um, training, going back to the army. I took a lot of training, again, some of it amazing, the jumping out of planes, a lot of it really bad, check the box. It was supposed to address things that were important. And it just wasn't, um, it really wasn't helping any soldiers navigate a situation. It was, it was kind of a joke. 
And so I remember being at McKinsey and then at some point getting an email saying like it's time for your annual risk training or your annual compliance training. And I was just surprised because I thought that for some reason, I thought that only the government did check the box training. It seemed candidly kind of dumb for a company that just spends so much money on an employee's hour to be kind of wasting time with training that everyone acknowledged. You press play and then you open up your phone and you send emails until you can click next and and that's what you do. And so I just found it strange to see that there at at such a um, otherwise like, you know, obviously incredible, um, like high functioning institution. And when I was thinking of leaving McKinsey, in part because I had this idea, I went to talk to a senior partner who was in the insurance practice because he just happened to be a mentor of mine. And I told him about this idea. And he explained to me how the cybersecurity market had evolved from kind of check the box to risk-based targeted, like actually reduce the likelihood that a, um, a company be vulnerable to a, say, like a cybersecurity attack because of like really good training, simulated phishing, whatever it was. And he said, like, nothing similar has happened in the people doing bad stuff part of compliance, whether that's code of conduct, insider trading, conflicts of interest, harassment. And he totally bought my thesis and said, like, look, I'll angel invest. And it's funny how I think in those pivotal moments, it's really nice to have a little bit of external validation because sometimes an idea just sounds really dumb. And hearing even one other person be like, yeah, I'd put some money behind that was, was a bit of like a shot in the arm. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, let's talk about also your co-founder, Anne. So uh, you guys have met a few times, you know, even, you know, before you actually came together and, and really became co-founders. So, so give us a, a little of a, of a walkthrough through that counterintuitive, you know, with knowing, you know, your business partner and, and what comes yeah. through that. Yeah. So I, um, unlike uh, Supper, when I knew my co-founder from, you know, two years of grad school, we traveled together. I actually really knew Anne um, Solmson, my my co-founder, really minimally. We had met, I think, twice in person before we decided to go into business together. I got connected to her because I was talking to some founders in the New York 
um, ecosystem and talked to his founder of an AI company. I almost didn't pitch him on my idea because he had this like super fancy office, um, you know, in um, downtown. And I just thought, you know, he runs an AI company. He's going to think my training idea is very small and kind of dumb. And like candidly, I thought there might be a gender component just in that like women businesses don't often get um, valued in in the same way. And so I almost didn't pitch him on it, but I ended up pitching him on it. And he said, I think it's a brilliant idea because I just took mandatory training at my company and I hated it. And it, you know, just like it was dumb and I was embarrassed to put it in front of my whole team. Felt like a waste of time. So yeah, I'll also angel invest. And he said, like, I know this woman, you should talk to her. She's thinking of starting her own company. She's thinking of leaving her current job. And I was like, oh, great. So I called her and none of that part was true. She wasn't really thinking of leaving her job. I think he was, this founder was just setting us up on a date. But we just like really hit it off from a couple of phone calls. And I think we FaceTimed and then, you know, met in person and she left um, a job. She was an engineer at Mark 43 that she had really loved. Um, and I'm still kind of shocked she did just because like there really wasn't a lot of there there. It was just me an idea that wasn't really fleshed out. And she's an incredibly methodical thinker. Um, But it was interesting when we started fundraising for, I think, our pre-seed round. Sometimes investors would look at our LinkedIn's and realize that we both went to Harvard and they would say like, oh, you met at Harvard. And we would just kind of let it fly because we knew that um, investors often didn't like to hear like, no, I met her last month. (laughs) Like, we'll see how this goes. But I think the fact that we didn't know each other forced us to be really intentional early on in our relationship. And so we did things like, you know, sit down and map out what happens in six months if the business isn't here, what's a reasonable um, expectation, like have all those hard conversations that I think if you know someone really well, you almost want to avoid because you, you know, have this friendship and it's, it's hard to suddenly have a really transactional business relationship. Understood. Now for the people that are listening to really understand what ended up being the business model of Athena, how do you guys make money? Yeah. So what um, Athena does is we're a modern compliance training platform. So, you know, if anyone's in finance, for example, you know, you get all those emails saying like, you've got to do your training. What we do is automate all of the workflow because there are different requirements, regulations based on state, country, et cetera. So we plug into an HR system to automate all of that. And then we deliver the training, what we call the moments that matter. So instead of just all at once, we dump training on you, you might get your gifts and entertainment policy right before the holidays so that you can remember that your company doesn't allow you to give and receive gifts above $75. Um, We give the training in graphic novels and short form video to make it really engaging, all with the idea of actually learning instead of uh, just checking a box. The business model is a SaaS business model. Um, Companies, when they train, they're always training their whole organization. So per employee per year, um, uh, license fee in order to get someone compliant and essentially keep them there. Meaning if they move from California to New York halfway through the year, all of those changes trigger, you know, different compliance training requirements. And we just meet those um, through our compliance training engine. And for the company, how much capital have you all raised to date? We've raised just a little over $50 million to date. We raised um, a $30 million Series B that we announced around May, June, somewhere around then. So that that was a, a fun moment. So tell us about signing the term sheet, that uh, seed extension. You know, what, what was that like? Because I know that was packed with, uh, with action. Yeah. So I was um, pregnant like pretty early on in our company journey. And I thought that I you know, had a bit more time than I did. We, we were probably maybe like, a, I don't know, six or seven person company at this point. 
our investors who led our seed uh, called GSV really believed in what we're doing, saw that we were getting to product market fit. We had just had some like really big logo sign at the time. Some like, I think Netflix had closed and maybe Zoom. And it was just looking like everything was going right. And so they preemptively said, you know, we'd love to, to double down. And we were, we were excited to take it because it allowed us to invest more in the business. It just that the timing had worked out that the term sheet arrived when I was supposed to go in for a normal appointment. And it turns out that I needed to, um, to quickly have the baby due to a slight emergency. So I ended up signing the term sheet, um, you know, at the Lenox Hill um, Hospital, which just felt like a real, um, a real woman founder moment. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Oh, my God. And now how, how has, you know, because you, you've done quite a, a few rounds of financings. How has the, I, I guess, the process or the experience uh, gone from, you know, going from pre-seed or micro-seed, whatever people are calling it nowadays. Yeah all the way to proper C, to series A, to series B. I mean, how has that journey uh, been like going from one cycle to the next? Yeah, I think one thing I think about is like, this was my first time as a founder fundraising because I bootstrapped the, the first business. And there's definitely a learning curve. And I've gotten you know feedback from investors on this. I think early on, um, I realized that, you know, you're selling a vision, you're selling the future. And I think, and I've, I've heard this um, in particular with women founders, but I know it happens like um, to others as well, that sometimes that balance can be hard. And so I would usually get some version of like from investors every time, you know, we sign a term sheet. Now they're kind of on the table and they see us operate. And they basically say like, I expected there to be a much bigger gap between what I thought you were and like where you are. But instead, you guys are like really good executors. And so like often it results in our um, whoever read like was in the previous round wanting to double down in the next round, like the GSV example. And I think that's just interesting because it, it's kind of taught me that balance of really pitching this exciting long um, term vision that we absolutely have about um, what we call like building this um, culture EKG, where we can give companies insight into what's actually happening at their company at real time and explaining that compliance training is a part of that, but that's what there is today and like pulling the future forward. I've just gotten much better at as, as time goes on. But I also like later rounds in some ways because it allows you know you as a founder to do a little bit more of just like a point to the scoreboard and show like, look, you don't have to... <laughs> Um, necessarily believe this vision. Just look at what my team is closing. Look at these customer referrals. Look at these testimonials. Look at our you know net dollar retention. Whatever it is, um, and I think that it's a little bit harder at the early stages to do that because obviously you just have you and your idea and your vision. Um, so the level of storytelling and pulling the future forward that you have to do, you know, is less as you raise subsequent rounds. Now, for the people that are listening to understand a little bit more the scope and size of Athena, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable with? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we raised our um, Series B earlier this year. I think we're about 70 employees at this point, which is like a really fun time because I think mostly I have like amazing senior leaders under me. Oh, I say mostly, being, meaning mostly I can get um, out of some of the day-to-day -day work and really start to to. Someone, one of our investors, I think Andy Dunn, who is um, the founder of Bonobos, told me like uh, a bit earlier this year, he's like, you're kind of transitioning from founder to CEO, which felt totally right. Like that does feel like kind of what's happening at this stage or maybe around the, the A. Um, yeah. And in terms of like um, employees on the platform, I think we trained like 65,000 plus employees from incredible companies from Carta to Pinterest to Netflix, um, really focusing on um, tech in particular. 
And that's very interesting what you just mentioned there. What is that transition from founder to CEO? What, what, does, what does that feel like? Yeah, I think it feels like, you know, early on when we were a two, three person company, I would get on a sales call and someone would say like, you know, who makes your training? And I'd say the content team. And it'd be like, it's me. And they would I'd say like, oh, I'm going to pass you to our CS team. And it'd be like, it's probably going to be me. You know, it's, a, it, it's a, you're wearing five different hats. Uh, very heavily in IC. I'm responding to every email that comes in, et cetera. And then I love the give away your Legos article. It's in first round review. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but the idea that as a startup grows, you kind of give away these Legos, right? So I'll give away CS because we hire a great VP of CS. I'll start to give away like certain parts of it and instead become more of a leader of the executive team, um, which doesn't, you know, it still means that occasionally something's going on and I dive in and I become a sales rep again, or I dive in and I, you know, I'm editing copy for this or that. But I think it just means that instead of solving problems, I'm now mostly in the business of helping my leaders solve problems. Um, and that's like a really interesting transition that not necessarily every founder wants to make. And I, I totally understand that. Like some love the build phase and this is kind of more in that like manage phase. Now, Imagine that you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world, let's say five years later, where the vision of Athena is fully realized. What does that world look like? I think that what's really neat about what we touch now is it's like all of these super sensitive, important interactions at a company, right? So whether it's like sexual harassment, uh, do I feel included at my company? It's like a huge um, issue. Or it's like, um, are people doing the right thing? Um, and, and these are like massive issues and training is one part of that, but there are so many other components of that, whether you think about how I might report on those issues, how a senior leader might have a leading indicator that there's a problem somewhere. Like I think about this a ton. Compliance is reactive, but this five-year vision I wake up from now and like a customer who's using Athena can actually kind of see blips, for example, and, oh, we brought in a new manager over there. And like the way that employees are responding to the surveys and the training and the reporting is really different. Like, I wonder if somehow they're not comfortable reporting abnormalities anymore in the sales process or like whatever it is. Um, this five-year vision is our tools really allow senior leaders, compliance, legal, HR to be much more forward-looking um, and have and have like insight into what's coming down the pike instead of just reactive um, to things. And um, I mean, it's like small stuff, but I'll hear from a customer, hey, someone yesterday realized that this interaction they're having with the client is actually pretty inappropriate. The client's asking them to do things that, that the client shouldn't be asking. And what was very cool is they took their Athena training and they actually solved it. Like they either addressed it with the client or they brought it to HR, or they brought it to compliance. And it's neat because our customers are realizing that if it weren't for this training, that probably would have escalated into a much larger incident. But instead, they they were able to solve it like in that moment. So going from reactive to proactive is my like dream scenario of five years from now. So then let's talk about the uh, proactive, being yeah. proactive. Imagine you had the special power of being able to put yourself into a time machine and going back in time and being able to have a chat with your younger self. Maybe mm -hmm. you know even before you started uh, your your previous company, Super Meals, and you were able to sit yourself down, your younger self, and give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be yeah. and why, given what you know now? It's hard to limit it to just one, but I'm going to try. I think it would be 
kind of a like shoot your shot at like any any time because I think there's such a hesitation sometimes to swing like early on, you know, to to pitch an idea or to um, take a sales call when you're not ready for it or <laughs> to like land a deal. Like there are all these moments where you they're always your first, right? Like maybe you've never fundraised before, and so this is going to be the first time you talk to a VC, first time you t- uh, sign a term sheet. Like everyone has to have those first. And I think that uh, I would want to tell like earlier me to just be willing to swing um, and be like pretty quick to swing because you learn so um, like, it's just amazing how much you learn when you like have multiple reps at things. And I think there's often that hesitation. Like, I don't want to look dumb. I don't want to feel stupid. The product's not ready. Like whatever it is that, that is that moment of hesitation. And of course there's always a balance, right? Like you, you know um, it is important to be methodical. But in general, if, yeah, at least for me, I would encourage myself to um, to like really early on, just be willing to take some of those risks. I love it. Now, yeah. Roxanne, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, I am probably most active on LinkedIn. So it's Roxanne Petraeus. There aren't a lot of Roxannes or Petraeuses. Um, and then our website is goathena.com. And again, if you are not enjoying your company's compliance training, please reach out to us because we always love to um, chat with new folks. Amazing. Well, Roxanne, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.